From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. Call them tamale pancakes, stuff masa frita, the humble love child of a quesadilla y calzone. This week on the show, we're celebrating 15 years of Earth Eats, with favorite stories reaching back to 2018. We visit a Midwest chocolate factory crafting world-class chocolate. And we talk with a poet making papusas in his kitchen. We talk with Suzanne Babb, an urban farmer with La Finca del Sur in the Bronx. All that and more is just ahead. Stay with us for this special trip down memory lane. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. And this is a special 15th anniversary of the show. Annie Corrigan started Earth Eats in 2009, and I took over in 2017. One of the traditions Annie established is a partnership with Harvest Public Media. They're a reporting collective covering our food system from the heartland. I can't think of a better place to start than with a current story from Harvest Public Media about a topic very close to my heart. The practice of canning food isn't a widespread necessity anymore. Most fruits and vegetables are available at the grocery store year-round. But over the last few years, home canning has gained popularity. Harvest Public Media's Lily Holleran has this report on the history of canning and how it's making a comeback. In the 1800s, canning was done in the home, primarily by women. They preserved surplus peas, peaches, corn, and other acidic foods in glass jars, storing them on shelves to eat throughout the year. But the 20th century brought federal food safety regulations, two world wars, and lots of cultural change. Canned goods moved from home kitchens to grocery store shelves as consumers gained confidence in commercial canning. A simple idea, but one of great promise. When industrial canning reached its peak in the 1950s, industry leaders were selling it as progress. We refer to it, and rightly so, as the miracle of the can. Then the 1960s brought the feminist movement and changed the relationship between women and food preparation. Americans wanted convenience. But now, canning has come home again. People who have the extra time and money are showing off their pantries full of colorful glass jars on Instagram. The hashtag canning has over 960 million views on TikTok. It's become more of an edutainment for many people. That's food historian Suzanne Corbett. She says canning has shifted from a vital skill in the kitchen to an at-home hobby. There's so much fast food and pre-processed food and that have kind of pushed that convenience factor to a situation where our cooking has become performance art in your own home. People tend to return to canning when things get scary, according to Claire Schmidt, a folklorist at Missouri Valley College. She points to the 2008 recession and the COVID pandemic. For Schmidt's family, 2020 was a time when trips to the grocery store were rare, and they were looking for ways to stay positive. Okay, your school's closed and everything is weird, and the radio is talking about people dying. But hey, we've got canned peaches, and so things aren't all that bad. Americans left lockdown and returned to work, but canning remains popular. In the last year, Jenna Smith taught more food preservation classes than ever before. A nutrition and wellness educator for the Illinois Extension, she says her students arrive with different experience levels. A grandparent may have taught them, 
or social media, which isn't such a great source, according to Smith. I just cringe sometimes at some of the videos and things that I see that are just so, you know, not safe. But no matter what inspired her students, Smith says they're eager to have more control over the food they eat. You know, actually seeing when you open up your cabinets all these beautiful jars of preserved foods, uh, that in itself, I think, is such a joy to, to many people. Some have scaled up the old school approach to canning. Kansas City Canning Company owner Tim Tuohy and his workers fill glass jars with unique flavors of fruit preserves, pickles, and various vegetables. Tuohy says he started the company with a plan to marry traditional practices with a modern approach. He took inspiration from childhood memories of canning tomatoes with neighbors. There's a connection to the past that people can actually identify with because it has that nostalgia to it. I, you know, I, I think fondly about spending time in the garden with my dad and picking the tomatoes and spending time with Joan and Frank across the street. Tui says he frequently fields questions from customers who want to try their hand at canning. What once seemed like a dying art is alive and well. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Lily Halloran. Harvest Public Media covers food and farming in the heartland. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.com. Next up, we have a story from 2018, when Alex Chambers was a part-time producer for Earth Eats. Here's Alex. So, a few weeks ago, I met a poet. My name's Willie Paloma. Who taught me to make pupusas. Pupusas are El Salvador's national dish. The country even got the Central American Free Trade Agreement to give them the corner on the pupusa export market. So they have a lot to do with identity for El Salvador, and for Willie, too, whose identity is complicated. I grew up Mormon and Salvadoran, liking hip-hop in a suburb of Utah, so that's like a weird place to be. And maybe contributed to the teenage identity crisis that led him to poetry. But we'll get to that. First, pupusas. How to describe them. You might call them a sort of a corn griddle cake. Call them tamale pancakes, stuffed masa frita, the humble love child of a quesadilla y calzone. The Spanish couldn't pronounce... You could also just say they're tortillas filled with cheese and pork and beans. So it's like a stealth tortilla? Yeah, a stealth tortilla. And traditionally, you eat the pupusas with cortido on top, and cortido is this topping that's made out of chopped cabbage, carrots. Some people throw other vegetables like beets or something in there. And then you... You also grind up tomatoes and then throw some seasoning in that, and then you end up with salsa. So you usually put those toppings on the pupusas, and traditionally you eat it with your hands. The cortito needs time to pickle, so we decided to start with that. What traditionally you do is like grab a whole head of cabbage, grab some carrots, and you'd slice them up, and some people put beets along with it. But what I did was just buy coleslaw from the grocery store, like raw, and then I'm just going to throw it into a bowl right now. Onions? Are there onions in there? Um, yeah. So, cabbage, carrots, onions, maybe some beets, slice them all into a bowl, throw in some oregano and black pepper, fill it about halfway with apple cider vinegar, and top the rest up with water. Traditionally, the way you make this, you actually let it soak into vinegar and water for a day. But in our case, it would just be the couple of hours it would take to make the pupusas themselves. While the cortito sat, we got going on the pupusa filling. So I got some pork loin chop um, cut thin from Kroger. And what we're going to do with it is cut it in smaller pieces right now. And then we're going to season it with some adobo. And like adobo is just like 
Latin mama's secret. Which is, to give the secret away, sorry Willie, a dry seasoning mix that you can also get at Kroger. And what we're going to do is um, fry the pork up until it's a bit, a little bit goldenish. And then we're going to mix it with some tomatoes and with some onions in a food processor. So looking at the pork right now, this looks like it's about done. So now that the pork is all done, I'm going to move to the food processor and put all the pork in there. We're going to grind it up with some tomatoes and onions. So let's see. We're going to chop up two onions. Three tomatoes, then throw in some adobo. Yeah, and you essentially want to grind it up into it's a bit pasty. The reason being is this is what's going to end up going inside the pupusas. With the pork all done, we made masa, that dough made of masa, harina, and water you use to make tortillas. Willie filled his mixing bowl about halfway with masa, harina, and then poured in some water and started to mix it up with his hands. It's really about getting the right sort of feel. Kind of like, is like Play-Doh? Is that kind of what you're yeah, going yeah, for? Yeah, yeah, Play-Doh is what you're going for. So, we had our masa Play-Doh, which smelled like fresh tortillas, and our blend of pork and tomatoes and onions. Now we needed something rich to pull it all together. I bought two queso frescos and then I'm gonna mix probably like two bags of mozzarella cheese with it. The reason mozzarella cheese works well is because what's delicious about pupusas is that um, the cheesy ones, like you're biting into it and like the cheese stretches as you're um, eating them. So that's always a delightful part of it. And at last, the fillings were ground up and ready. The cortito was pickling and the masa was waiting. It was finally time to make pupusas. Yeah, so now we're at the point where we can actually start preparing that. What I have right now is the masa. So you want to grab the masa and you want to make a small um, kind of ball of it in your hand. So you roll them out between your hands. And how would you? What, how big would you describe that ball? Um. It kind of depends on how big your hands are, I guess. But like mine is, how big would this be? That's like a little bit bigger than a golf ball, right? Yeah, I'd say. Like a I don't play ball. golf. <laughs> um, it would be like if it's the size of an apple, it's too big. Okay. This is like this is like a kiwi size. And then you, so once you get the ball, you flatten it between your hands by just smacking your hands together. And then once you get... Um, a flattened kind of tortilla, like roundish tortilla-like shape in your hand. You grab a small fingerful of the pork and you put it in. And then you grab about the same amount of cheese and you put it in, into the center of the pupusa. So like the tortilla-ish part. And then once you have it all in there, kind of like it's a flour, you put the edges of the tortilla up. And it is kind of the hardest part to explain. And then you make sure it's all closed in. So what it looks like right now is uh, like a ball again um, because I closed everything up. And then I'm just rolling that between my hands. And then what we're going to do is flatten this ball again. And then what ends up happening is that it ends up looking flat like a tortilla again. So now I'm just placing it onto the pan that's... Um, quite a bit bigger one yes because you want to be able to cook more than one at once or else it's just like it already takes such a long time you want to be able to speed up the process a little bit and then like the way my mom grew up making these was over um leña which is like kind of an open flame stove 
where you like stick wood and stuff like that. Yeah, my I was in El Salvador this past summer and hearing some stories just about my grandma and stuff like that. And apparently she would like wake up at three in the morning, kill a pig or two, have it cut up and all butchered, then uh, make the first bit of it, which was like the fritada, which is like fried pork, and then like sell pieces of those off and then like send my mom and her sisters to go sell and then she'd make another thing that you can make out of pork and then by noon she was she would be making pupusas and this was in the context of a story of my grandma being like a badass and like how much work she would get done <laughs> making all this stuff so it's kind of an involved process to make the pupusas um i expect to be here for another little bit to end up with a decent batch yeah it was another little bit I put down the mic to help Willie out. After a while, the kitchen was hazy with smoke from the griddle, and we had a good stack of pupusas. I figured we were close to done. And then I saw the mountains of ground pork and cheese looming over us on the counter, and I decided to make peace with being there all night. I mean, Willie's a good guy to hang out with, but I was getting hungry. Luckily, around the time the fire alarm went off... It is kind of normal if your fire alarm goes off. Willie suggested we take a break and eat. I was relieved. We each took a couple pupusas, piled on the cortito, and dug in. They were really satisfying. Salty from the pork, bright with the cortito's acid, and rich with the queso and mozzarella. As Willie pointed out, they're a good dish for a big gathering. He sometimes makes them with a friend for the free dinners at La Casa, the Latino cultural center at Indiana University. Historically, though, the labor of making these didn't usually fall to the guys. The pupusas are traditionally made by, like, the woman in the culture. There's definitely something weird that, like, I'm a guy who makes pupusas. And, like, when I go back to El Salvador, they're like, you go in the kitchen with your mom and you, like, make pupusas with her? Like, growing up, um, like, as kids, we, like, my mom would let us play with the masa. And, like, of course we wanted to. It was, like, Play-Doh. We were like, ah. And my dad used to get mad and then be like, no, like, you guys, like, especially the boys aren't supposed to be making pupusas. I wonder what his dad thought about him becoming a poet. My father used to slap my hands for squeezing maseca like Play-Doh. Making pupusas is a woman's work. Call me a maricon. As we're talking and I'm trying to understand what it is about writing poems that's connected to pupusas, suddenly, like that moment when the dry powder of the masa harina coheres into a Play-Doh-y paste, it starts to come together. I realized that what got him started making pupusas must be the same as what made him a writer. That definitely is. Like, I'm the one in my family who's been the most curious and the one who's been, like, the most trying to preserve. And I guess the one who had the biggest identity crisis, honestly, who, like, had the hardest time trying to grapple with, like, who the heck I was. And what that drew me to was, like, exploring my culture more and actually being the one who asked my mom and dad the most questions. What I'm trying to get at right now is that, like, especially with a lot of Salvadoran parents who are in the U.S., of my generation at least, they came here because of the, they were refugees of a civil war. The Salvadoran Civil War, which started, officially at least, with a military coup in 1979. Throughout the 1980s, the government terrorized the civilian population with threats, disappearances, and publicized killings of anyone opposing them, including students, journalists, peasants, clergy, medical workers. The death squads ramped up their activity in the early 90s until peace accords finally ended the war in 1992. Out of a population of just over 5 million, 
more than a million people were displaced. There's huge experiences with migration, with warfare that they've had that like, at least the way my parents approach it, like never really talked to us about it as kids. Like every once in a while, maybe at Christmas, while all the aunties were together, they'd tell stories late into the night. Or there's like bits and pieces of it that we would have. But like there was a certain point where I was just like, yo mom, tell me this stuff. Um, and that became crucially important, yes, because there is so much there that wasn't told. When I talked to my mom about it, um, we had like a few moments like this where I was like, oh, why didn't you tell me this stuff? Um, Initially, the first time I asked her that was when I visited El Salvador for the first time. I was like 18. And then I like land in El Salvador and like have this huge cultural adjusting and trying to figure out what's going on. Loved it the whole time I was there. But there was also a part of me that was hugely frustrated that my parents didn't share with that with me earlier. Um, and I, so I like, we were going to bed, it was late at night. And then me and my mom were still awake. So like, yes, out of nowhere, I was like, yo mom, why didn't you tell me any of this stuff growing up? And like, she was silent. She didn't say anything. So the next year when we go back to El Salvador, one of my tias is there with us again. So in the room when I initially asked the question was one of my tias, my mom and me. And like my tias there again and we're talking. And I was like, yo mom, remember last year when I asked you like why you didn't tell me anything and you didn't even answer me? And then my mom's like, yeah, I just got this knot in my throat and I couldn't speak. And then my tia is like, Willie, you're so dumb. Of course your mom couldn't communicate an entire country to you. Like that's ridiculous. And like once you're there, it's like, yeah, this would be really hard to communicate to like a kid who grew up only in the U.S. Like when I was younger, I didn't even want to speak Spanish. And it wasn't until I was back in like late high school where I was trying to like figure that out more. Um, so like a lot of that was just impossible to communicate. And especially when it came to the stuff about war, when I started talking to her about it, she was like, yeah, I wasn't going to tell you that stuff when you guys were kids, but to tell you like this traumatizing thing. I'm like, I'm worried to mess with you or something like that. So a lot of it was waiting until we were old enough that my mother was comfortable, like sharing experiences she had with warfare and stuff like that. And like part of that, yes, desire and wanting to like know is what kind of also brought me to the pupusas and being like, oh, I want to know how to actually make this. The Civil War sent Willie's parents and his tias and tios and lots of other Salvadoran families into what would turn into the Salvadoran diaspora. They settled all over the states, from New Jersey to Salt Lake City. They kept their country alive through music and family gatherings and trying to keep their sons out of the kitchen. El Salvador became more than a country bordered by Guatemala and Honduras. It spread out. That's what a lot of migration, that's what a lot of being a refugee is, is being uprooted and moved different places. But then the sons and daughters moved to Indiana, and they want to know how much adobo to put into their pupusas. There's a recipe for pupusas available on our website. I cobbled it together based on the guesses about measurements Willie was giving me, just like the ones he got from his mother. And then right now, I think I'm throwing in like two to three teaspoons. And so, like, one thing that's really annoying with a lot of Central American cooking for, like, a lot of the children of the diaspora, so our parents who come from, like, El Salvador or elsewhere, is that, like, our parents don't cook using measuring, like, cups at all. So, like, when we, like, ask them, how do we make this? They never have a straight answer. They're like, oh, you just kind of put this much in. And you're like, how much was that? And they, like, have no idea. 
But maybe it doesn't matter if the pupusas are somehow authentically Salvadoran or if they're the pizza pupusas Willie came across in Salt Lake City once. I think it's fine if your proportions of adobo to pork aren't exactly right. Willie doesn't live on the land where his parents or abuelitas did. But some rough estimation of the place is still in his hands and in his mixing bowls and the food processor and in what he makes for his family and his friends. The thing to keep in mind is that it doesn't need to be perfect, and especially the whole part about getting them just flat enough or um, just thin enough or, yes, without any holes in it is mostly aesthetic. So even those first batches of pupusas I had, like, tasted good, even though that they were, like, hideous and kind of deformed in all their different ways. Pupusas o lucha. They look like tortillas, and Yankees can't tell the difference entre Mexicano, Iwanaco, entrees como accents y pimienta. Call them tamale pancakes, stuffed masa frita, the humble love child of a quesadilla y calzone. The Spanish couldn't pronounce popotlax either. What we called pupusas before we forgot to add the taste of nahua y libertad. Take a knife to my skin if you want to see what we're made of. But real wanacos, we ain't afraid to get our hands dirty. I stink loco with Loroco's reefer. Slap and massage masa until it's ass fat. My father used to slap my hands for squeezing maseca like Play-Doh. Making pupusas is a woman's work. Call me a maricón. Once he threw out an entire batch porque la salsa no era auténtico. Whatever. Now you can find peaks of pupusas y pupusas from SLC. Now I smack fried chicken like godson into la masa and watch it pop y tremble campero into a baseline of humo y fuego. Call them what you like. As for me, I'll call them domingos where dinner set off fire alarms and the entire house smoked with mantequilla. I'll call them midnights mama stayed up to make enough to pay off debt collectors the way we gave our best to survive and fill our children's bellies, leaving them all licking their lips. That was Willie Palomo talking with Alex Chambers back in 2018. Alex is now the host and producer of Interstates, a show about art, culture, and how it all feels, right here on WFIU and wherever you get your podcasts. Our next guest, Suzanne Babb, works with Why Hunger in New York City. In her role as the community partnership manager, she connects and supports organizations around the country dealing with food access. Her focus is the intersection of hunger, health, and poverty. She spends her time cultivating dialogue around the systematic inequalities that cause hunger and poverty. But we're speaking with her today about another role she plays in her community. I'm Suzanne Babb, and I am an urban farmer in the Bronx. The farm that I'm a part of is called La Finca del Sur, and it's in the South Bronx. And the South Bronx is one of the poorest congressional districts in the U.S. The term food desert might come to mind when you think about a place like the South Bronx. But urban farmers like Suzanne Babb would urge you to consider another term, food apartheid. Food desert makes it sound like it's naturally occurring. But those who work in the world of food access and food justice know the policies and practices that lead to neighborhoods without readily available fresh foods. La Finca del Sur is connected to a movement that gives voice to communities denied access to nourishing food. It's a women of color-led farm, mainly Black and Latinx women, 
who are working towards food justice in their community. It was founded in 2009, and I've been farming there for six years. The name La Finca del Sur translates to Farm of the South, and it's called that because we're in the South Bronx, but also because most of us have roots either in the American South or in the Global South, whether that's um, Africa, the Caribbean, or Central and South America. And also recognizing, too, that as women who are farming here, we're in solidarity with the women who are the majority of farmers in the Global South. It's about four acres, and we farm on two of those acres. We have about 20 member beds that people pay a certain amount of money each year, and they they can grow whatever they want in that bed for the whole year. And then we have communal beds, which we grow food for the South Bronx Farmers Market, which started about four years ago. And we're like the only urban farm that that sells at that market. We sell a lot of greens like collards, um, Swiss chard, kale. We sell dandelion leaves. We have carrots and beets and strawberries. And we're trying to grow sweet potato this year. We have epazote and papalo and different types of tomatoes and cucumbers and we, we grow a lot of herbs so we've got like lemon balm and mint and sage and parsley and cilantro, oregano, thyme, um, peas and beans as well. We grow to sell but also grow those for like nitrogen fixing, um, squash, uh, yeah I think that's it. But growing food is only one part of the work at La Finca del Sur. So I would say that the work that we do is kind of split into three categories. There's the the food production part and the food justice part. And we really try to connect. We connect with like Bronx Greenups, which helps support community gardens around the borough. When we work with other folks, we hold workshops um, around food and farming techniques for community gardeners. And the second part, I would say, is around women's healing and creative expression. So we've had everything from like all day retreats where we've had yoga and meditation. We've done murals. We do all kinds of things that women want to and need to do to kind of heal from the the everyday living existence of and what we face as women of color. And then um, the third thing I would say is around social justice. So really connecting to what's going on in other parts of the Bronx and other parts of the city that are connected to food as well. So we have done things with folks who are working around gentrification and trying to make sure that housing stays affordable to the Bronx. We've had talks there. We've done things with Latino Outdoors, which is a group that is really trying to reconnect folks who identify as part of the Latinx community back to nature and the outdoors. Um, And last year we had a whole day of programming with Bufu, which is by us for us, which is really working to build Black and Asian solidarity. And so just having a whole day of like conversations and activities um, to really build that, that collaboration. I asked Suzanne what motivates her to do this work. I think initially, for me, I came from it from a health perspective, but more like a oh, nutrition, you know, and teaching people how to cook, which I still think is very important. But I think what I have realized in the years of being at the farm and, and other work around food is that, like, food is the linchpin of culture and community. I feel like working in the farm 
brings back food memories for folks. And like for me, I know that it has brought back my connection, my family's connection to food. Like my father grew up on a farm and had to come to, I'm from Canada, and he came to Canada as a migrant farm worker, even though he was trained as a mechanic. But that was one of the only ways that he could immigrate and had to like the second year that he did that had to like leave the farm in the middle of the night to go to another city to try and get a different life and so I think about how that's tied to migration and immigration and also my grandfather on my mother's side was a sugarcane cutter and that's like my grandparents died when I was pretty young and that's the only memory I have is my grandfather taking my sister and I to a sugarcane field and us tasting sugarcane for the first time and so like having that that food connection being the only connection to my most recent ancestors um, it builds community I feel like when you're farming like in a city people often just worry about whether a farm can feed people to a scale that it needs to but for me it's you get so much more you're more in, in tune with the environment because you have to know what what your plants need you're more in tune with the people around you you're more you have to be more engaged in what's happening politically because you're trying to preserve the land that you're growing on which you often don't own you get more in you know in a space that I'm in you're more in touch with your culture and other people's culture and you're you're learning in this like popular education informal way that is that is much deeper and like celebrates everybody as experts so for me food is life you know it brings people together but it has often been used to to tear people apart what do you think are some of the barriers that keep people of color from being involved in farming or growing food and in particular women of color maybe well I think there's the history of farming of agriculture of how people of color have been used and exploited through chattel slavery to work this land. I mean, it's one of the reasons that I know that Africans were were kidnapped and brought into slavery here is because of our knowledge of that. But the history that is closest to us is that of slavery and that of sharecropping and how we were exploited and tortured. And that's often the only part of our history and our connection to agriculture that we know of and hear about. So that is, that is really painful. And so I know for my family and other people's families, success for their children meant going to school, getting a college education and getting an office job. But I think that through my work at La Finca, and then I'm also part of a group called Black Urban Growers, which is all of these growers around the country, urban and rural, who are connected to that liberatory history around agriculture. So talking about the ways in which like farmers often were like the the pillars of the civil rights movement you know they would sometimes sell their land to help fund the civil rights movement or when people were marching from place to place would give them a place to stay and food to eat to keep them keep their work going um to like Fannie Lou Hamer who had the Freedom Farm Collective that was this acres of, of farm that people worked collaboratively and sent food all the way up to Chicago and had a health clinic and had a sewing cooperative and all of these different ways in which people use the land for self-determination. We need to 
reclaim the narrative so that folks understand that like yes we come from this painful history and we have also had some liberatory we have a liberatory history that we need to celebrate and that is why I think most of the folks who farm now farm because being able to grow your own food is freedom like I think Fannie Lou Hamer said it was like I've got jars of food pickled and canned and if I've got that nobody can tell me what to do and so once we connect to that and realize that that those skills and those practices give us our freedom so that we can do those other things and organize in other ways and we've still we're still able to to take care of our basic needs You've been listening to a conversation with Suzanne Babb about her work with La Finca del Sur, a farm in the South Bronx led by women of color. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. I spoke with Suzanne at the Allied Media Conference in Detroit in June. For more information about the farm, see our website, eartheats.org. That story from the Earth Eats archive is from 2018. Having spent my formative years in Springfield, Missouri, I would not have expected to find there a small chocolate factory producing award-winning, single-origin craft chocolates with direct-trade cocoa bean sourcing. A lot has changed in this Ozark town of my youth, including the revitalization of Commercial Street. Askinosi Chocolate has been instrumental in that effort. They located their production facility and retail space in the district when they started the company in 2007. Sean Eskinozzi left a successful career as a defense attorney to pursue a passion for high-quality chocolate and to do some good in the world along the way. I had a chance to visit with Sean in Springfield earlier this fall. We started our tour of the chocolate factory in a warehouse behind the main facility. So this is where it's uh, just, you know, a few steps away from the back door of our factory. What you see here are cocoa bean bags from the four origins that we buy them from. So Philippines, Tanzania, Amazon, and Ecuador. What you see is probably around 25 metric tons of cocoa beans. It smells a little bit vinegary. Yeah, it smells like something fermenting. Yeah, for me, it smells good because I know that it's right. You know, I know that it's been fermented. So all of these beans I've visited before they came here. This room is probably the greatest source of pride for me personally. I just got back from Tanzania a few weeks ago. It was my 44th origin trip since I started the company. And every year I go visit these farms in every origin that we buy from not just to lay my eyes and hands on these beans, but to see people that I've developed relationships with now over the years. In Tanzania, we've been buying beans from this village for almost 10 years. Peter Cruz, I've been buying beans from him since 2008 and going there every year in the Philippines, Davao. And then Ecuador, I've been buying beans from Vitaliano, who's on the front of our package, almost 15 years. So I go there to see them. I take nothing for granted when it comes to these cocoa beans. Um, I never took these beans for granted. From the first trip that I took to the last one a few weeks ago in Tanzania. And what I mean by that is I know that quality drift is easy in any supply chain relationship. But we cannot afford quality drift in a little family business with only 17 employees. And so I know that making great chocolate starts with what you're looking at here in these cocoa beans. The other thing is we share profits with the farmers. And so I want to do that in person. Um, and we translate our financials into their language. So when Lauren and I were in Tanzania a few weeks ago, our financials were in Swahili. 
and the farmers are able to understand our profit share calculation by um, looking at the financials, and we go over that with them every year and give them money back on the prior year's sale of cocoa beans. This is a lot of hard work. Uh, I know the farmers, you know, who've harvested um, these beans and who grew these beans, then to watch them pull up on a semi-truck and use this forklift, not me personally, that would be too dangerous, but to this forklift to unload the beans and to see them in here, I mean, it's it's a, a real source of pride for me. There's a lot of story and a lot of work and love behind the acquisition of these cocoa beans. I wanted to know what Sean is looking for when he inspects these raw cocoa beans at their origins. Well, the first thing is there's some beans here um, from the Philippines. We can just kind of look at them. And what we want to do is just look at the exterior of the bean and just look at its color look at its shape, look at its size. All of these things have to do with quality specifications in cocoa beans. And they don't need to be perfectly uniform in color. As you can tell, this one is really dark. This one's kind of tan. This one looks like it's got some white stuff on it, which is actually um, oxidized pulp from when these beans were fermented. So what I'm looking for as I break this open, the shell is very thin and these beans have not been roasted yet. So they're not going to be a flavor that I'm wanting. But I can tell when I'm at origin, I can tell by looking at the exterior of the beans, not even the interior, just the exterior. Are they quality? Will they meet my specification? I can tell by holding the beans in one hand and kind of crunching them up next to my ear by the way they sound, if they meet the moisture content specification that we have in our beans. So what we're looking for at the beginning of the whole thing is, can these beans that I'm looking at just meet a minimum threshold of quality specification that we set forth? And then we're going to be tasting them and what they smell like and what they taste like. And so the interior of a bean is called a nib. This is a Trinitario variety. The first little crunch of this, there's fruit on the very first crunch. Now, this is not what it's going to smell and taste like when we make chocolate from these beans. And we make a high cocoa content chocolate out of these. We make a 77%. But I can tell they're good. I can tell they're high quality. If I'm at origin, I'm in the middle of the jungle and I'm looking at these, I'm, I say to myself, after looking at the exterior, looking at the interior, and then this is the other thing we do that I didn't mention, but I open these beans up at origin and I cut down the middle of all of these beans and I'll look at the interior of the bean. I'll look at the color of the interior and I can tell by how dark it is to how purple it is to how brown it is. I'm going to know whether or not I'm able to detect higher or lower levels of fermentation based on the color of the interior of the bean. And so the reason that's important is because we want there to not be just perfectly uniform fermentation because that's going to give my chocolate a little more interesting flavor profile. It's not going to be sort of a monotone. It's going to have highs and lows if some of the beans have different characteristics in terms of fermentation. Now, another thing that I, that I do sometimes, I don't do it every time, but I will um, take these beans at origin and find a fire. Sometimes it's just like a campfire or a kitchen fire and get a little pan and roast them there myself, just in the kitchen of a farmer. Then I can tell, not again, again, not what it's going to taste like, but I can smell the roast. 
And that's going to give me more indication of taste than if I taste the roasted beans because we know that taste is 90% smell. So that's just in a nutshell what we're looking at. Mm -hmm. After a short break, we'll head into the factory to learn more about chocolate production. I'm Kate Young, this is Earth Eats, and I'm back with Sean Eskinozzi. We're heading into the factory to talk about the details of crafting his award-winning chocolates. Kind of in the back door of the factory, and um, we'll just go into the roasting room, and this is what happens. So we take those beans over there that you saw, we put them in these containers, we've cleaned them. So then um, we put them in the roaster, which is hot. (laughs) So this is... um, a roaster that I bought in Colombia, and the thing about this is it has no thermostatic control, so and it never did. So it would be like roasting on a campfire, and we've won a lot of awards around the world with this roaster, because I think really the greatest opportunity for us as chocolate makers to influence the flavor of our chocolate is right here. It's in this roaster. So if we've got good quality beans that have met our specification, then we're going to have our the greatest chance right here to roast, whether we're gonna roast with a high temperature for a short time or a lower temperature over a longer period of time, that's where we're gonna be able to do it. But the thing about this roaster is that, so the beans go in the hopper and there's the temperature gauge, but the only way to control the temperature is by watching the temperature gauge and then determining when to drop the beans into the roaster. And then we watch the temperature gauge go down. You have to absolutely pay attention because at these temperatures and at these times, which sometimes can be really short, I mean, some of these beans will only roast for eight minutes. So you have to be really careful. And are you going to be wanting to roast all of the beans about the same, or do you have different roasts for different, different kinds of flavors that you're looking for in each product that you're making? We have different roasting profiles for every different thing that we're going to make. We had some Criollo beans in here from the Amazon, just a really limited supply of them. And we made a chocolate bar over the summer with them. We had a guest chocolate maker in from Washington, DC, Zeke Emanuel. He's a doctor, but a chocolate maker on the side. And so we were in this room sitting right here, trying to figure out how to not screw those beans up. That was the big thing. They're great beans, they're very rare. We knew they were what we wanted them to be. And the only, our main job was to not mess them up in this roaster. So we were really careful. And that, yeah, so every, every one of them has a different profile. They go into the cooling tray, and then they go uh, from the cooling tray through this auger system, and we crush the beans here. Uh, there's a little, like, roller on top that crushes these beans, and then they fall down this chute. This is what they look like when they fall down that chute, and the shells are off. You can smell it, yeah. And the shells have been essentially vacuumed off. We have a cyclone on the roof, and it is a kind of a big vacuum, and it, it takes those shells and removes, and there's some shell, which is fine. The shell goes into this thing right here where that big hose is. Depending on how many we have, we might sell them if a brewer needs them to steep the shells in a recipe that they have. Or we have a whole bunch, we'll give them to a local organic farmer and he uses it for both his pigs and also as a compost. Now, the noise that you hear now, um, this is called a universal refiner. And this machine is is a grinder. So it's just like your kitchen grinder at home, except it holds 250 kilograms and it's on its side. You can smell this too. That's chocolate. Uh, I'll get a spoon. (laughs) This is my lucky day. (laughs) 
Um, what I'm about to do is put a plastic spoon under a curtain of chocolate inside this machine that is running. If any one of my employees did what I'm about to do, I would fire them on the spot. So this is what we call um, our Ecuador bulk. This is what we will sell to a coffee shop near you to make mochas and hot cocos with or bake with or make ice cream with. Yes, I got to taste from that curtain of molten chocolate flowing inside that refiner. Oh, it's really nice. What do you put in there? That tub of nibs. So we put those nibs in there and we put organic sugar in there and we put cocoa butter in there that we make. Yeah, that's it. This is going to run for a while. This thing is on 24-7. It's unusual for chocolate makers to process their own cocoa butter, even craft chocolate makers. He has a custom-built machine for this process. Once the chocolate leaves the Universal Refiner, it's held in special staging tanks, then moved into the tempering room for the final stages of molding, cooling, and packaging. It's all very beautiful, to be honest. I personally fell in love with a space-age-looking machine called a panner. It's used to apply an even chocolate coating onto round candies. You can see a photo of it on the website. Next, we went into the retail space to talk about and taste specific bars. I was especially interested to hear about the Zeke bar. And then this is the bar that I was telling you about with those special Criollo beans from the Amazon, Chinchipe, Ecuador. This is the Zeke bar because of Zeke Emanuel that I was telling you about. We only made 2,300 of these bars. But, um, Can you talk about what you're tasting? The Zeke bar is a very complex um, flavor profile. It's not monotone like we were talking about before. It's going to have a nuttiness to it. It's going to have fudgy coffee flavor. So there's definitely a strong coffee note in this chocolate bar. And what's really cool about this is we didn't put coffee in it. So this means that the roasted cocoa bean is going to bring out flavors that you won't expect. So for example, the Tanzania, for whatever reason, tastes like bread and jam. I don't know why, I mean, I'm not a chemist. It's, it has to do with the organoleptic profile of the fermentation and drying process and the chemical reaction that occurs during roasting just when you make toast, you know, when it turns from bread to toast or when chocolate chip cookie dough turns to cookies, that same chemical reaction is occurring in the roaster. And so that's when all of these flavors are kind of unlocked. So when I was on this farm in the Amazon in May, tasting these beans out of the pod, it doesn't taste like this. You just know it's going to be different. So you don't you don't know what's going to happen. No. no. But here's the thing about this that I think is staggering is that what we've learned, if we can get these beans to pass through this threshold spec that I talked about earlier, then the challenge for us, as I said, on these beans that we just now are tasting that's still in our mouth is to not mess it up. And I would say that's... Um, we want to do that for all of these chocolate bars to not mess it up. And this is where the challenge comes in. We've done that. I mean, Vitaliano and we've, I've been buying beans from him for almost 15 years. So the challenge for a chocolate maker is you can, you can, anybody can do this once. I can go get you a bag of beans and you can 
take a little grinder to your basement and hey i made a chocolate bar and but to do that year in year out year in year out knowing that sometimes the beans are going to not be as great and then they're going to be great it's like wine then they're going to be better and then they're going to be awesome and we know that and we're perfectly willing to accept that finally i asked sean to talk about the difference between fair trade chocolate and direct trade chocolate fair trade is a certification Direct trade is a practice as defined by the practitioner. Fair trade is a certification based on the premium that's paid on the per metric ton price of the cocoa bean. And I know, look, I respect the fair trade movement. It served so many wonderful purposes. I can I can only speak to cocoa socially, economically, environmentally. But in my opinion, it has become a victim of its own good marketing. And, and what I mean by that is people see the label they feel a sense of um, trust that that money that they're paying for that bar, that the premium they're paying is going to the farmers. But unfortunately, study after study recently has determined that much of that premium doesn't trickle its way down to the farmer who's struggling to harvest, ferment, and dry these cocoa beans. And so uh, it's also really, I think, more applicable to really large cooperatives that can afford it and can use it as a management tool. It's a management tool. It's a certification process. It's a, a premium, but direct trade is a practice. So Intelligentsia Coffee, were they were really the pioneers of direct trade coffee. They were my teachers and we define it the way they do, you know, and it has to do with paying a high price, having high quality specs, going to visit the farms, making sure there's not children and slaves working on these farms. Yeah, succinctly, that's what I would say the differences are. And I would say to your listeners, your listeners are thinking, well, gosh, how am I going to know what to do? I, I need to know. Well, we all have now, with the wealth of information available to us in fashion, food, all of these things, we can find out. We need to develop, I think, trust relationships with the people that we buy stuff from. And trust is built over time. And I think trust is, is deeper and more dependable than a certification. Sean Askinosi is the founder and CEO of Askinosi Chocolate in Springfield, Missouri. There's so much we didn't get to. Their collaborations with places like Jenny's Splendid Ice Cream, Chocolate University, and other philanthropic projects launched by Askinosi. You can find out more about all of this on our website, and see photos from my tour, eartheats.org. That story from the Earth Eats archives was produced in 2019. That does it for our 15th anniversary episode of Earth Eats. Next week, we'll continue the celebration with another favorite from the archives of Food Radio here at WFIU. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Earth Eats team includes Ayabon Binder, Alexis Carvajal, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Daniela Richardson, Samantha Schemenauer, Peyton Whaley, and Harvest Public Media. Earth Eats is produced and edited by me, Kate Young. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from Universal Production Music. Our executive producer is Eric Bolstridge. Eric Bolstridge.